0: again in this moment. You know we're in the uh, second week of a two-week series that I'm preaching on choosing kingdom leaders and I hope this applies to all of us at some to some degree or another because all of us are influencers in some way in this community uh, maybe around the country even or around the world some of you as you travel around. So what does it look like for us to be leaders who influence in kingdom ways but there's another reason for the series and that is that we are in the midst of a selection process for elders who will serve and lead this body. And so last week we talked about in the kingdom of God, we serve not through power and control, not power over others. Jesus said to his disciples, that's not the pagans serve that way, they lead that way. But not so with you. You lead, lead as one who serves, as one who gives up your life on behalf of, of others. And today I want to leave you with a question as you go off this next week and spend time in prayer and fasting and as you discern what name should go on that list of leaders uh, for the next season of this church's life when it comes to the eldership. Uh, But I'm not going to share that with you now because then you wouldn't stick around. You'd leave with the question I had, right? So I'll come back to that in a little bit. But I want to begin with a prayer this morning that God would continue to guide this process and, and lead us with his word this morning. God, this morning uh, we come to an important stage in this church's life that happens about every three years. When we discern, God, uh, who the best leaders are to lead this body into our future, into your future, God. So this morning and through this week, I pray for your supernatural guidance, that your Holy Spirit would lead that process. I thank you for those who are involved in, in the preparation of all this, God. But I pray that we can We can nominate people, we nominate men, God, who would lead this church well. That would serve and follow Jesus first and foremost. And would be shepherds who can guide all of us as sheep along that journey. This morning, God, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching. So that Christ would be formed in our hearts and in our lives. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Well, for the past few years, I've been on a quest, and I've got to tell you, it's not going all that well. My quest has been uh, related to leadership and the kind of leaders we should be selecting. And it goes something like this. The church is in need of more judgmental leaders. Now you understand why it's not going all that well. That's not the culture we live in, is it? And before you rush to judgment about my judgmental quest... I'd ask that you stick with me a little bit this morning, because my hope is by the end of the message, you might agree with me as well. And others of you might be thinking, why in the world did we hire this guy? It's just one more sermon after another that we're thinking, what was that search team up to? But again, before you pass judgment, stick with me. Let me clarify. See, many churches seem to be quite judgmental about the world. And that's not the kind of judgmentalism I'm talking about. In fact, Paul is quite clear. That's not actually our task at all. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and an interesting piece of a letter that was written, well, a few years ago. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9 is where I want to pick up. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Some of you might say amen to that, right? But but listen to what he says as he follows. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. In other words, Paul wants us to judge, but he's not talking about those who are outside the church. He's talking about those of us who have put on Jesus, who have decided to commit ourselves to a certain lifestyle, to live holy lives in the way that God has called us. So whatever judgmental Facebook posts we might be passing around about Caitlyn Jenner. We can kind of put those away because the task isn't those outside the church. The task, as Paul describes it to the church at Corinth, is to judge those who are inside the church. You see, it's strange for us to hold people accountable to a standard of living like Jesus when they've never made the decision to live like Jesus. If the world is dark It's time that we stop kicking at the darkness. It's time that we wonder why the light isn't shining more brightly. Maybe that's the question we need to consider. So my quest for judgmentalism isn't aimed at those outside of the church. We need to be more judgmental of those inside the church. Now when I was writing this sermon, I was thinking about when I would get to this point in the sermon, wondering how awkward it might be. And I've got to tell you, it's a bit awkward. Because this isn't what you came this morning to hear exactly, right? Right? In a culture of tolerance and a culture that says, well, we don't really need to hold one another accountable. We really just need to live as the best life we can and count on the grace of God. Now, i got to tell you, I didn't get hired as the preacher of this church by a search team that heard a lot of hellfire and brimstone sermons. This isn't my normal start to any sermon. So if you're on the preacher search team, grant me some grace as well. You might have wondered already if I was the right choice. Now you might wonder even more. Now, when I'm talking about judgmentalism in the church, I'm referring uh, to most of the judgment that goes on in our churches not being the judgment that we should be doing. This is how we usually judge when it comes to in the church. We do shaming, all kinds of shaming, when it comes to mothers who parent in a certain way. And I think we've had about enough of it, haven't we? Judging if you go out and work in the world that you're not doing your job at home, or judging that if you choose to stay home that you're not being the mom you should be. This kind of stuff, it just needs to stop. Or maybe it's other judgments that we've made over the years. You know, conservatives that will talk all they want about the progressives, and then the progressives that talk all they want about the, the conservatives just in their own circles, but not outside of that as we talk about the challenges of living a life together in the kingdom. I'm also not referring to those judgments that have to do with the, the sermon on Sunday morning or the classes that we attend that sometimes we slip into when we get to the cars if this is some kind of consumeristic exercise that we just kind of give our critique to. These aren't the kind of judgments I'm suggesting because, well, I'm the preacher and I don't like that. My family doesn't like that glass house syndrome exactly. I'm, I'm talking about the kind of judgment that I'm, this is the quest I was on, the kind of judgment that calls us to be a more holy people. Who look more like Jesus and who He's called us to be? The judgment I'm referring to is one that actually draws us into greater fellowship with one another. And again, stick with me. Have you ever seen the the, the television show? It's on A and E. It's a show called Intervention. Any of you ever seen this show before? It's this heartbreaking show that details the stories of people who've been caught up in addictions and their families and loved ones who come to surround them in the moment. The first part of the show usually details the story of how they got into this addiction and how this addiction is ruining all kinds of things in their lives. And the second part of the show is when all their friends and their family, they gather around and they call this secret session in order to Name something that's going on to judge this person, but to judge them well, right? To be able to tell truth to someone who's in the midst of a hard situation and say, we want you to get help. We see this. We're not sure you do see where this is going. In almost every episode, you can count on a couple things happening. You can count, especially as kind of a distance observer to the show, you can count on friends and family who deeply love the person that they're having this intervention with. And they're being harmed in this situation as much as the person going through the addiction. And you can also count on the person in the center of this intervention, in that seat, not wanting to be in the seat that they're sitting in. You just kind of sense this squirming and this, I don't like what's about to happen. And then as the story goes on, you begin to sense more of this, right? There's, There's those moments where usually in the midst of this, you get this kickback from the person who's sitting in that seat. And often it comes in the form of judgment of those who are judging them. Some of you may have been through an intervention, and and you know this hits close to home this morning. Because in those moments, often the person who needs this help, who needs this loving judgment, sits in judgment over others to say, who do you think you are? You have no right to speak into my life. I know what you're up to as well. And in those moments, there are other moments too where some of them are open to the idea that maybe what they're speaking is truth. That maybe what they need to see most is that they are destroying their lives. That this addiction may take them a place they never intended to go in the first place. It's the kind of judgment that's redemptive. It's the kind of judgment that can actually save people in the end. Because there are many families with addicts where no one loves the addict enough to say the hard thing. And I know some of you grew up in those families. And i got to say this morning, it's hard, isn't it? I don't know from personal experience and some of the ways that many of you do, it's hard to speak that word when you don't know what that word is going to do to unravel things. You don't know what the response is going to be. But the healthiest families are able to make judgments on people in ways that can actually save their lives. And my contention this morning is the healthiest churches are the churches that are able to judge people in redemptive and healing ways to save them from what might be a sure path of destruction. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul has to say the hard thing to this church in 1 Corinthians 5. You remember the scene here, what's going on? There's a stepson that's sleeping with a stepmother. And the church is having a hard time calling out this sin. In fact, Paul says, some of you are even boasting about this. You're proud of this sin, as if God forgives everything. And the more you sin, the more God forgives, and it's a great deal. And Paul has to do the hard thing to step into this community and say, no, 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 this cannot go on. This has to stop. We never judge people without having to first judge ourselves, that's where we need to come from. But eventually, this kind of judgment has to happen in a community. And that's why choosing leaders is so important. That's why what we do over this next week is so important. But in American culture, we choose leaders in different ways in this, don't we? In his book, I Wear the Black Hat, Chuck Klosterman writes about how we select leaders in our culture. And I thought his words were incisive on American culture And I think sometimes how that emerges in churches when it comes to these kinds of things. These are his words that I want to read this morning from that book, if we could pull them up. America is a looks-based, superficial society, he writes. Everyone accepts this, and only the naive disagree. Yet we still somehow underrate its cultural persuasion. Physical appearance is the most important element of almost every human interaction we have. Not the only element, but the one that is most fundamental and expansive. One of my deepest fears about democracy is that for the rest of my life, presidential elections will be dominated by whichever candidate is more conventionally attractive. In the last six presidential elections, the younger candidate has won five times, a stark contrast to the historical record. But could there ever be a dwarf president? No way. Could a modern-day Thomas Jefferson win a primary if he had also had a severe skull deformity? Nay, such a scenario will not happen in my lifetime or in the lifetime of this book. And that's not just an American way to choose leaders. Unfortunately, this is the way leaders have been chosen in the kingdom of God since the very beginning. I want to point to a passage in Scripture in 1 Samuel. It's where we were last week, so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open there. 1 Samuel we read the story in chapter 8 last week about how they chose a king. They wanted a king. Today I want to tell you more of that story. Because who the, the guy they chose first was a guy named Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, we begin to read about Saul, the first description we get in Scripture about him. And this is what it says. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose son, name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. You notice how the description goes, right? How do they describe Saul? They describe him based on physical appearance. He was a handsome man. He was a head taller than everyone else. Basically, they had chosen a leader based on how you choose your teams on the playground at recess growing up. I mean, you remember how that goes, right? Certain people get chosen first and certain people get chosen last. And Saul had been chosen first since probably early on in his life. And so when it's time to pick a king that's going to be the right king, you choose the one that's always been picked growing up. But in the case of Saul, this external appearance isn't the best way to go as the story goes on. So when it's time for them to pick a second leader, they're much more careful to ask God about who they should select. And it's interesting, last time you remember we read that God said, hey, if you come back to me and you wish you hadn't asked for a king, I'm not going to hear you. But they do ask him, how should we select a king this next time? And this is what he says uh, the next time. First Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In a sense, God is saying to Samuel, hey, don't choose a king like you did last time. Don't think that you just kind of go through the same process and you pick the right leader by appearance and things are going to turn out. No, the Lord looks at the heart, and if you're going to select a leader for this nation, you need to look at the same thing. And even though David made numerous mistakes in his life, I think it's fascinating how this is what God says in First Samuel 16, but later in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, we read a description about how Paul, uh, or, or about how Paul describes uh, I'm sorry, Peter describes uh, David in Acts chapter 13. Let's see if we can get there. Acts 13, I want to read verse 22. I'm sorry. This is Paul. Verse 22. After removing Saul, he made David their king. And God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, there are a lot of ways that Paul could describe David in Acts 13, can't he? A lot of things that David did wrong that he could define him by, but what does he say? So this is it's a man who was, had a heart after God's own heart. And that was exactly what God had told the Israelites to do. That when you select a king, don't look at external appearance. Look at his heart. The Lord looks at his heart. And I can't say enough about this principle and how important it is for us as we go through this process of, of selecting leaders. That when you write down names to nominate, don't make the same mistake Israel made. Don't make the mistake that, that we as Americans often make. Don't look at a resume don't look at uh, external appearance. Don't look at someone's fundraising ability. That's not how you pick elders. And, and here's the other thing that we might fall into if we're not careful when it comes to appearance. Sometimes we've made the mistake of deciding that the only nominees in an elder selection process should be those who have uh, wrinkles and gray hair. And that's just as much a decision based on external appearance as the other factors. Age is important and experience is important. I'm not saying those things aren't, but let's not just choose nominees based on external appearance. It's about the heart that God has given. So let's look at the hearts of our our, the leaders in our church. And here's what's interesting. Often in these processes, in fact, I was asked this week, I told I was preaching on a series on elders, and this other pastor in the area said, you know, uh, so you must be talking about 1 Timothy and Titus. And I said, well, actually, no, this series, I'm not going there. We're looking at 1 Samuel. And and, and those passages are very important. I hope that you'll be looking over those this week, about the qualities that a leader should have. But here's what's interesting about what we've done with those passages in 1 Timothy and Titus. See, the churches I grew up in, we weren't very consistent about the qualities in those lists that we selected we were very careful to observe certain qualities that we judged we never had a, an elder growing up who had two wives now there weren't that many in the con- men in the congregation to select from who had two wives so that wasn't a hard thing but we did never decide on one of those uh, in the church i had growing up uh, it was very important that their kids were baptized and believing children is important. I think we want to see a, a track record that people can lead their families to follow Jesus if they're going to lead the rest of the church to follow Jesus. But we never, ever selected somebody who hadn't done that. We, we never had an elder growing up who was a recent convert. That was one of those things of the qualities in that list that were very important. We, we never had those things. Now, if you look, think about those things that were so important in these processes, those are external things that we can judge very clearly, aren't they? When we can almost, you're you're hardly ever going to come across a guy that, that has two wives that's just been hiding one until he comes in the eldership and she shows up, right? And you've never had children, you know, who, you know, no one really knew about. I guess this could happen, but you can basically kind of see if their kids are following Jesus or not. Or if they were recent converts, you can see the water that's still on their hair. We don't just, I mean, that's something you can judge pretty clearly, right? These are external things you can see. But to be honest, I have no idea if any of the elders that I have served, that I've I've been a member under, I have no idea if any of them were lovers of money. That's just something that's a little harder to determine and and, and figure out, isn't it? I don't remember any of our elders knowing for sure if they were sincere or if we ever judge based on that because how do you judge sincerity? It's easy to judge the the two wives thing, but sincerity? Or uh, pursuing dishonest gain. Maybe there were some conversations that went on that I wasn't aware of, but I don't remember us judging those internal qualities as much as the external. And as I thought about the churches I grew up in, and and likely some of the ones that you grew up in as well, I realized that we made the same mistake with these lists that the Israelites made in 1 Samuel. That those parts of the list that were easy to judge, that were external things, well, we were sure to check every one of those boxes, But how do you judge in this culture that's so tolerant, how do you judge those internal characteristics? That's much harder. It's hard to come to someone and say, I think you're a lover of money, and I'm not sure how we can go forward in this process until we work through that. I want want to go back to these words that convict me from 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. uh, Let me read this again, if you can pull that up. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, For I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If you were divorced growing up, there's no way you would have passed in my home church growing up. Probably many of yours either. But I'm guessing there may have been a few that lacked some sincerity that got through over the years. I'm wondering if there were a few that might not have been above reproach, which we'll come back to that phrase. That's a hard one, right? And how many of us would raise our hand and say, well, I definitely meet that quality, right? Above reproach. But this all brings me back to a passage that haunts me on a regular basis, that ought to haunt any of us who are leaders, teachers. It's in James chapter 3. James 3 and verse 1. This is a passage I come back to often as I try to address my heart in my own life. James 3 verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers. Because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now there's a vertical dimension, a vertical truth to James 3.1 that I think we can all acknowledge, right? That leaders and teachers will be held to a high standard for what they've taught, for the character of their lives. We know that God is a a piece of that. But I'm I'm here to tell you this morning, there's a horizontal piece to that as well, right? Like There's a piece in which those who rise to leadership that teach, that that lead, they're going to be judged more harshly by their peers as well, in a horizontal way. And if you don't believe that, I've got a box full of emails and letters I can show you in my office right now. Teachers are going to be judged more strictly. And here's a point I want to clarify. Earlier in the sermon, I told you about the importance of a church being a church of judgment. And, And this starts with choosing judgmental leaders. And on that show intervention, the first response of the person receiving the intervention is usually, who in the world do you think you are? I've walked beside you. I've seen your family. Nothing's perfect about you. So why are you speaking into my life? And if you've ever been a part of an intervention or something like this before, isn't that the nervousness you have about coming and confronting someone about something? Is what might be pointed out in my life if I actually present this to someone on the other end? Well, who are you to judge? That's the question we fear most when we confront and when we judge in this way. And so I come back to that phrase, above reproach. And that's important because those of us who are teachers and leaders are called to a standard. We're judged more strictly when it comes vertically, but also in this horizontal relationship. And and here's the problem with so many of our elder search processes. In many churches, when elders are selected... They are often chosen based on their ability to represent, as I talked about last week, an agenda on behalf of a large group of the congregation. And that's good in a representative democracy, but it is not a good thing in a church. And here's where we need to to think about this again because when we select elders, we are not just picking leaders to make decisions, we're picking elders. For a community of faith that is seeking to live a Christ-like life and is trying to spur and encourage one another on to that goal. So here's that question that I didn't share at the beginning that I want to share with you now. Maybe this can be a question that will settle in with you as you think this week, as you pray and fast. Who is the person you would most want to lead an intervention in your life if your life spins out of control? Now, when I thought about names that I often think about in these processes in other churches, the people I thought about and nominated were not the people that would have answered, I would have answered this question with. Because sometimes the leaders in our church who are great leaders in every other part of life, they're the last person I would want to show up in this scene. Actually, they might be the first person I'd want if my life was spinning out of control. Because in that moment, it would be so easy to say, Who do you think you are? Who are you to speak into my life? I know all kinds of things. And, and that's the problem with a search process and a, not following these qualities that are internal, is when it comes to the important matters, all of a sudden we're able to say, Who in the world do you think you are? But if we select leaders that we would want to be the very person on our doorstep, if things and if maybe when things go wrong in our life, and the first response we would have wouldn't be, Who do you think you are? It'd be, I know exactly what you're saying. I don't have anything to speak against your life. I know you're for me. I know you're for my flourishing. I know your judgment is not meant for wrong. It's actually meant to redeem and to restore. And if those are the people that we select in this process, then won't it be so much better when those people come to us in those hard moments? Now, we don't think about this in our churches anymore because we often we expect if things go wrong and someone confronts us, there's a church down the street we can go to. But that's not what church is. Church is a place where we commit to before the hard things happen so that when they do, we're able to work through them and reconcile them and experience grace that cannot happen in the consumeristic model that happens all over the world. Because if you can't stick through the hard times and find reconciliation, that door is going to continue to revolve because churches are imperfect places. But if we commit to being a place where we're going to work through those hard things, we're going to find our way through them, we're going to restore relationship, we're going to accept people who confront our sin, then all of a sudden we become a body of believers that God can use in greater ways than the way the church is going these days. It's so easy to go and, and, and go to another church, but in Corinth it wasn't, was it? Like that was real church discipline for the, the son and the stepmother who were dealing with that. And they had to be restored if they were going to come back to the kingdom. So who do you want? on your front doorstep. If you've made a commitment to follow Jesus, you've been baptized in the waters of baptism, and it's time for someone to confront you and say, you're not living up to the standard you've been called to. That's actually what this body of believers should be about. And yet it's so hard to do that, isn't it? so hard to be a leader and do that. So I want you to sit with this question over the next few days. Who would it be that would be that person in your life that would be the best shepherd to walk in beside you at a time of mourning in your life? Who who is it that you would want to be that person to walk beside you as, as you go to confront a brother or sister that's in the midst of trouble? Who would it be that you would want on your front doorstep if you have walked down a path that you need to be restored from? I think those kind of leaders and the people that pop into your head are the best people to lead this church. May God lead us toward the men that would help us do that best. Amen? Let's pray together as we close. Father, I thank you so much for your word. God, we we are grateful for the grace that you offer to us. God, we preach sermons on that all the time, and there will be many more like that than the one this morning. But God, we can't forget that you're calling us to live a high standard. You're calling us to live as a people who are set apart, a holy people. God, we thank you for the grace that covers our mistakes, but we don't want to stay there. We, we want to live lives that are, are growing in discipleship. We want to live life in community where if we're going down a wrong path, we want people to come and restore us, and we want the right people to be there to do so. So God, over these next seven days, would you put people in our minds who are those kinds of people? God, we need leaders. Oversight's not just about these hard conversations or about being there at the hospital. It is about those things. It's also about leadership. And so God, would all of these things that you guide us in through scripture, would would we be about that? But most of all, would we not look at outward appearance? God, it's so easy to do. Would we look at the heart? And God, there are good people you've put in this church to lead who have great hearts. So, God, lead us to those names and those people. And would you allow those people to see that their leadership here would be a blessing to this community? That's why they're being nominated, God. As people see them as people they, would, they want to follow and, and be led by. This morning, God, I pray you would change us and you would shape us. And whatever conversations like these might need to happen in the days to come, would you give us courage to have those conversations with grace and mercy and restoration at the heart? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This week uh, there was an article that came up in the Allen American that uh, I think as we're talking about.